I suppose you're not in them anymore, but were they good bands? I, th- I mean, I thought they were good. We, we were a little behind our time. We were. It was already when we the band I started in high school. We, it was already like 2006, and we were and we started a ska band. So it's yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> so we were like like we were like five years behind the death of most ska. So mm-hmm. it was just fun. Yeah. Do try to bring the mic stand as close to the edge of the table as possible. Just um, because I don't know. Just based on the gain settings and the fact that these are, you know, dynamics very directional. Yeah. You do have to almost eat the mic. You know. That's I mean, they, they, these are SM58s, yeah. so you need to get like guards on these if you're getting people this close. The pop filters. Yeah. Uh, I thought about getting pop filters, and I did, but. I didn't realize that apparently the more common size pop filters are like six inches in diameter. And so <laughs> if you were to set them up correctly with these mics, you would obscure to whoever, the face of whoever you were talking to. Yeah. Which I, I suppose doesn't really make sense you know, if you're, if I'm doing a, a podcast where I'm trying to have conversations with people. It'd be weird not to see their faces. Otherwise, you might as well do a remote kind of recording. So you ready to go? Well, yeah, I've been ready. Uh, you, we've been rolling for a, for a bit. Uh, I know. I just don't. I wasn't <laughs> sure what you wanted. If you want to, where you want to start? Uh, we don't have to start anywhere, really. Okay. Uh, in the end, we're just talking. Well, uh, actually, when this goes up, would you rather I refer to you as Zach or Zachary? Zach's fine. Okay. No one. No one calls me Zachary. <laughs> well, how you been? Good. How's things? Exhausting. It's the beginning of the semester. Fall semester is. I mean, I'm, as crazy as it is for you, for you as a student, it's for faculty and staff, it's insane. <laughs> Just so much work to get everything going for the whole year. Yeah. Did you did you ever finish um, setting up all the computers with um, the Adobe Suite? Yep, they are all ready to go. The full Adobe Suite is finally updated. Everything's running smoothly. DaVinci Resolve is set up on every computer. Especially because with our new Blackmagic cameras, you need DaVinci Resolve um, to deal with Blackmagic's new codecs. You can't, like, there's no plugins yet to put them into Premiere, so you have to go through um, their own software, DaVinci. Right. And uh, are you only teaching intro to filmmaking this semester? I'm teaching intro to filmmaking and documentary filmmaking. I usually teach two classes a semester. Okay. How's that going? Great. Great. I've never gotten the chance to teach a like just full documentary class before. And it's funny, that's I mean, for the last six years or so, I mean all I've been doing is making documentary and experimental work. So it's exciting to actually teach something that's completely in my wheelhouse hmm. rather than, you know, even intro to film is a lot of narrative work, which is not something I personally really do. Not really? Yeah, I don't I don't really make any narrative films. Pretty much nonfiction with everything. If I recall correctly, intro to filmmaking is not normally offered in the fall, right? That's correct. We're it's more of a the progression is normally like intro to film in fall and intro to filmmaking in the spring. Right. Um, it's kind of set up with the idea freshman film majors coming in will take intro to film which is kind of intro to film studies and overlook of just really starting to talk about like cinematic terms and then by the fall or by the spring they can take intro to filmmaking and you know just get their kind of feet wet with like 
cameras and specifically um, professional gear. Luckily, you know, the way technology is progressing, I mean, a lot of people are used to shooting 4K on their phones now, but the issue is unless, you know, they come from a, some kind of usually music background in like high school, say, no one really has the professional audio or specifically professional lighting gear like down. They've never touched it usually. I remember yeah, when I was taking intro to filmmaking with, with you, I've told you before, I'm not like, despite being, you you think as a musician, I would, I would have um, experimented with and know a bit about recording, but I don't think it was very much until um, our class that I did get my feet wet in terms of trying to record sound and learn how to engineer and produce it. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's so different than anything else getting, especially like field recording, location sound work, as well as, you know, we, in the intro class, we really don't get into like, really like studio audio work, like say ADR work, or um, even just in studio, like Foley work. Because, you know, most of the intro class is really, like, about kind of run-and-gun guerrilla filmmaking. It's not like a we don't have the time to, like, you know, talk about all the kind of, like, crews on a set, what those different departments would need to do to create, like, say, a longer narrative work. When I was in there, I almost kind of felt like the equivalent of, like, a bunch of kids using, like, a Super 8 camera. Like, it's very much, since the equipment is so limited... It's, um, or rather our experience and wherewithal to, um, put something together was so limited. It's almost like you just shoot it and then you cut it together. Yeah. You know, I mean, kind of like a, like if you're just a kid with like a Super 8. Yeah. It's pretty much that, except that, yeah, it's professional gear. That's the, that's the big difference is, you know, just to start getting everyone to understand professional gear and more importantly, how to manually use it. Because, even, you know, I've noticed that students have come in with video skills from, like, high school programs. They've used the cameras, or similar cameras sometimes, but they've always just done things like put it on auto, or, like, they were just told, just press this button. Most of them, the ones that even know, like, say, like, what white balance is, mm-hmm. have no idea, like, the theoretical concepts behind why you need to, say, white balance a camera. So that's really all that intro class is. You know, a lot of people are coming in with different skill sets. Um, a lot of people nowadays have backgrounds on DSLR cameras, mm-hmm. which for a while was the most affordable way to shoot um, professional video, probably for about five, six years there. Yeah. Until like all these companies, you know, Panasonic, Sony, Blackmagic, Canon, all started coming out with cinema cameras, which is, you know, it's really interesting to me um for someone who wasn't into like when i started making film not really into the technology side of it i've just transitioned so much into it partially just from being doing years of freelance work because you need to know what's on the market and what's the best for what you're doing and the most affordable for what you're doing mm-hmm. i still don't know how to use those cameras but <laughs> even after um an entire semester's worth of classes where that was the main thing we would use but like for all the little projects where we would have to film stuff, I use my own uh, DSLR. Right. But I mean, at, at this point, with the way cameras change so fast, I, I almost don't want you guys to just be like, learn this, like 
just memorize how a, one camera works. I'd rather you guys learn, you know, understand exposure, composition, more the theoretical terms that you can take and learn a new camera. So if you have all those like concepts down and you understand like how to change depth of field quickly and really understand how the camera works, hopefully you'll get to the point where you can sit down with a manual for a new camera, read it one day, play with the camera for a few days, and then feel comfortable enough you know, to shoot something. I would still argue that you should always, if you're going to shoot like a big project, shoot it on a camera you know. Yeah. Even people I went to grad school with sometimes forgot about that. <laughs> they're like, someone's shooting their thesis project, and they're like, oh, I got this great deal on this like Canon C500. Um, or the, I, I guess it was the 300. But, um, and they're like, great. So you got it for two weeks. It's coming the day before you start shooting. And you're hired a cinematographer who works exclusively with Panasonic gear. So it's just like, luckily the cinematographer is great and he did his research. But again, that camera has some issues with just like noise and gain that unless you're used to working with it, you probably wouldn't know the workaround so much. For audio? No, for video. Oh. Because, you know. When you said gain, I thought you meant as in. No, I mean, it's, you can have gain on video too. It's mostly is more like when we're talking about like ENG cameras and video cameras because traditionally they don't have like ISO settings, right? Like a DSLR or a more, or like a cinema camera would. Mm -hmm. So they have like kind of like you adjust this digital gain to kind of change the sensitivity of the sensor. Oh, okay. But again, the issue is, just like if you're if you push the ISO too much, you get that. The, yeah, uh, it's a digital noise pretty much because yeah, image noise that looks kind of grainy. Right, because it's you're losing. Usually, when you pump that up, you're especially if you're pumping it up to like fix for exposure, like losing detail, especially in the blacks. On some level, I have. I guess I have knowledge about like exposure, but that's more from like taking photography classes, right. where uh, we worked with film film photography mm-hmm. and i would say i understand how to do that film photography but i haven't really figured out how that translates to digital video doing digital video well i mean the one because the, the way i understand um like uh it's you know shutter speed and your f-stop mm-hmm. and changing you have to change those in like an inverse direction or something in order to maintain the correct amount of exposure while changing details like the depth of field or motion blur in a still image. Right. But then I'm not sure how that works in in motion in motion picture. Well, I mean, take cinematography. It's, <laughs> it's either going to be offered next semester or in the fall. Um, I'm not sure yet, but like that's the same thing because we have photography majors at least once a year come over to take like an upper level production class and that's the first thing they they ask they're like oh i have a fixed i have to have a fixed shutter speed how am i how do i change my depth of field yeah. you're at that point that just means you have to work with the other elements so you're you know working with your aperture um the focal length of your lens and then the third one that photographers don't really think about is lighting not not even lighting just the distance from your subject right so those are the, the three things you're really working with I mean, obviously, lighting helps because if you have, you know, professional lighting there, you can adjust the lighting 
to help get the exposure you want. Right. Yeah, I still don't know how to... <laughs> Take cinematography. It'll teach you all that technical stuff. That's... Yeah. Um, I, I usually teach cinematography for the most part. I have been the last two years. In the last two years, yeah. And it's it's a fun class because it's, it's, it's the only class that you'll pretty much do mostly group work. It's all about like learning how to be a ca- be a camera crew for the most part. Okay. So, you know, how to be a um, director of photography and like an assistant, um, a gaffer. Yeah. Uh, best boy and such. You know, luckily we don't it's not too complicated for us here. We don't gaffer wise cuz we currently don't own any tungsten lights over 1k. The issue is once you get above there, that's like when they are pulling so much power from a circuit, you have to worry about how much you plug into a circuit. Yeah. And that's the hard thing to understand is like, because the next step up, which is like a 2K, which is kind of like a small light for like a professional set. Mm -hmm. For the most part, if you put it in like a residential plug, you can only run one off that whole circuit. I didn't have that problem when I was like shooting my short films. Well, luckily everything's starting to go LED for the most part, a yeah. lot of LED lighting has become a lot better. Um, and that's, you know, not so much of a concern, especially because most of the time they can just run off like the big V mount batteries, like the huge like block batteries, yeah, which is great. So you don't really have to, and obviously they pull less energy than the, your traditional film lights. Yeah. But even though sometimes people are still doing that, if, some students have rented generators Really? Yeah, someone rented one for their thesis film last year, but I think that was more of a location issue because they wanted to use lights, and I think they were like, you know, lighting a like An a street building, or <laughs> I think they were just lighting a street. Oh, and you know, for that that kind of stuff, you want to make it seem like it's coming from the street lights, but obviously the street lights aren't going to be strong enough. Yeah. So, what are you taking this semester, film wise? Uh, I'm taking animation with a uh, professor Natten, and uh, Sin 314 studies in colon. This semester, it's uh, the European road movie. That should be good. I, I love a good road movie. Well, most of them are like French, but... Uh, <laughs> well, that's... And la- last, uh, this past week, we watched um, a three-hour German thing by Wim Wenders. Ooh, um, did you watch... It's from 76. Was it An American Friend? It was uh, Kings of the Road. Okay. I'm going to say half the movie was not necessary. But <laughs> I don't know. I love... Uh, Vin Vendors, just, I just love everything about especially his compositions. They're just gorgeous. Um, should watch, watch um, Paris, Texas. It's a really good Vin Vendors film. I was looking at the wiki page for uh, some of his films while I was watching Kings of the Road, and I saw, I noticed Paris, Texas. And it won the Palme d'Or. Mm-hmm. At uh, during its uh, year of release, right? Yeah, he's a he's a really interesting director because he did some of his um, you know education in the U.S. So he has this really interesting perspective. A lot of his films deal with the issue of like American consumerism and especially like how that relates to like European culture. Yeah, I noticed um, there are a few touches of like Americanisms mm-hmm. in Kings of the Road. The lead guy. Who's kind of blonde-ish with a mustache? You know, he's driving this truck full of equipment he uses to repair projectors at movie theaters along the west coast of East Germany, and he would put in like what looked like 
78s mm-hmm. into this, uh, uh, I guess you could call disc player, but for, I guess, 78s. And a lot of records he would play were like American-ish kind of songs. And there was even a scene where they're both, him and this other guy are sitting at um, what looks like a cafe at a train station or something. Yeah. And they quoted the um, that song, Love in Vain, written mm-hmm. by Robert Johnson and famously recorded by the Rolling Stones in 69 for yeah. Let It Bleed. I mean, you also just like, that's it's fascinating all of those like post-war like German directors because think of it this way so a lot of these direct of that like generation of new German cinema directors so vendors Herzog Schlorndorf Fassbinder they all like you know were born around or right after World War II mm-hmm. and grew up in like you know a defeated Germany where almost all of the cultural influences coming in were coming from America. As a country, they were spending their time. I mean, the same with post-war France. Like both countries were had to deal with so much of post-war issues that arts and culture weren't a big thing. So, you know, Hollywood was just like, sell it, sell it, sell it, send it over. So it's like they had this whole influence of like American culture growing up. Even the, um, I even heard like the, uh, there's just one piece of music he would, cut in to the movie in between what looked seemed like acts of the movie that sound that was like a real very american sounding acoustic slide guitar kind of thing yeah that was in a waltz if um if you were watching a scene and with with no that had no dialogue you could have completely mistaken it for like an american movie because mm-hmm. it was it just seems like a oh a couple of guys and a what looks like an rv on the road with this uh, great, sounded really well produced acoustic guitar track yeah. playing. It's like, and then they would, and then if you watch long enough, they would start speaking German. You're like, wait, wait a minute, what? The thing is, I actually haven't even seen seen that Vendors film. But you're saying there he was fixing like projectors and things. Yeah, the um, one of the main characters is this guy who works as a guy who who um fixes uh film movie project projectors. Yeah, he's a repairman for projectors. I. Don't know, I I personally like really enjoy stuff like that where there's a bit of like it's a little inside baseball about yeah filmmaking or well, mo- just movies yeah I mean I'm I'm kind of interested because I mean a lot of your film for the intro class was you know it's it's about process yeah so I was just like is is that something are, are you interested in stuff like that too uh, movies about making movies or just you mean yeah I mean I because especially like personally as an artist I'm. Like I'm fascinated about how other people like work, their yeah. process. Just, you know, how they write, how who's the famous editor? Now I'm, I'm Who? com- there's a famous film editor that like super interesting because like when he switched to like digital editing, instead of like he before like even like standing desks were starting to get popular, he was like using like like a big drafting table so you could like tilt it. So he would tilt it and then just have monitors on the wall and he would stand the whole time and edit like that. Can't remember the guy's name though. Walter Murch? Is it? I don't know. I'm just throwing out names I know. of like big editors who've been around long be. enough for like for their transition from film to digital. Like oh. Walter Murch or like Michael Kahn or um Is it hmm. Although I think Michael Kahn may, may have only done digital a hand one like one time or a handful of times. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, anymore you have to know how to edit digitally. I mean, even films that are shot on film are edited digitally. Yeah. Uh, I saw this thing Adobe put out about the Coen brothers, mm-hmm. and um, they edit their own films under the pseudonym Roderick Janes. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're real kind of real filmmakers. They shoot everything on film, except for like the last movie or the movie before that, Hail Caesar, I think might have been shot on digital. Yeah. And I think for the longest time they were working with like Final Cut. And then at some point they switched over to like Premiere for like Hail Caesar. Yeah, well, that's pretty much everyone. So like Final Cut was like the real like first like professional, not the like non-linear editing software. So like, and it was like that forever. The issue is, you know, about 10 years ago, Apple just became like such like what they are now of like, you need the newest thing. For the longest time, Apple was like the, was for the artist, for like the specialty person. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's a reason that like still like graphic design exclusively like uses Macs. It's just like what they all like learned on and got used to. I'm the same way. I've been having a very hard time thinking that I'm finally going to have to transition over to a PC because I'm just tired of working on my computer constantly. I, um, I've had a Hackintosh for like six years and I just, I'm just tired of having to like problem solve it all the time if there's ever an issue. And half the time, more than half the time, you can't just like upgrade from one operating system to the next. Mm-hmm. You have to like wipe a drive yeah. and start completely fresh and then work through all the problems again to see if it will work. <laughs> the only reason is because First of all, the trash can was a horrible computer. Yeah, the the black Mac Pro. The, yeah. It was the cylinder one. Yeah. Um, supposedly, I think they are finally... Well, they came out with the iMac Pro like a year and a half ago, which is a nice computer. It's the one that's in this lab right now that we're sitting in. My only problem with it is I think the entry level, before you put in any like heavy-duty hardware, it's like just under five grand. It's like... <laughs> My, my computer is almost the equivalent of this. It's probably a, a two years out of date compared to this, but I, I built it myself for like just over two grand. So you can't, can't complain with those results. It's just, yeah. it's just a lot of working on it all the time. Yeah. I would think given like how, how I work, I'm, you would think I'm, I would be like a Mac person. Yeah. But I don't know. There's something about Macs that, I mean, sure, I don't mind working on them, but. I think it might have been just because I grew up using PCs. Exactly. And I could, I got comfortable enough, familiar enough with them that I just knew how to work, work around in one. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, I didn't get, I think we got our first PC when I was in sixth or seventh grade. Before that we had, we always had Macs. My dad uh, is a retired school teacher and he, that's what he learned on in the eighties when he was like (laughs) for teaching purposes. And then he had a friend build him a Mac from scratch and we had that when I was growing up and then at some point I guess work switched over to PC so we just bought like a standard Dell tower and Mm. then I had that for a few years but by the time I was in high school I was editing on Mac Pro towers on uh, I guess Final Cut 5 probably so I just can't get away from I like the workflow of a Mac. Plus the issue is I have 12 years of video work on Mac hard drives. Yeah. That is almost like, I think it's, I have like almost 30 terabytes. <laughs> so it's just like, what am I going to do? Uh, <laughs> yes. It, it'll be a hard transition. 
Yeah, there's um, there are certain features I like about Macs that that really work, like the um, how you can preview a file by hitting the spacebar. Yeah, when you're when you're looking for it in the Finder, but there's something about how as like a loyal iPhone user, you would think I would. I've had thoughts about getting a Mac. Yeah, because it's like, oh, I want, I want, I want all the pixels, and <laughs> the uh, uh, whatever processor they're using, but and like the fact that it looks so sleek or something. But yeah. um, I've always, I think at heart, I've always been a PC user because, again, like the the fact that I grew up using it and only ever used PCs really up until like I I got exposed to Macs in like high school. Yeah, I there's something about the the way things are organized in a PC that works for me. Like, um, I suppose the way, like, um, I feel like most people who look at like a PC for the first time in their life, they're like, wait a minute. So you like, you go, there's a start button and then you have to go like, wait, just like, you don't realize the amount of levels in which like things are organized and uh, yeah. the information is organized in folders and such. Yeah. That's a big thing for me. It took getting back, I didn't really start working on PCs again until I started teaching here. And they, the year I started teaching here, they just put in that the brand new PC lab. Yeah, I remember when um, right before I came in here, I, I came into the university. I was there to like look around or mm-hmm. um, for orientation. And I remember, I remember looking into that room, and there were still Macs in there. Yeah, and there's, I mean, that's the really nice thing is that this department is growing and it's starting to get more funding than it's ever had because yeah, I you know. I think, you know, I, I did my undergrad here. Yeah. So um, we had four, possibly five. We had what? I think we had, yeah, we had two Mac Towers, Mac Pro Towers, and then three iMacs. And that was it for the whole department. <laughs> and it was a pain because people would be there for hours. And one of the things they would be doing is they would just be dumping footage <laughs> because we, we were shooting on um, DV and then HDV tapes. So, like, it's not like... Wait, it tapes? Yeah. So you can't, like, just drop a file, like, with an SD card. Pretty much you do is you... you if you shot two hours on this tape, you'd play it back in normal time, and it would capture it onto the computer. Right. So, like, if you had, th- if you had shot a narrative and it was, like, on three tapes you'd have to sit through all three tapes as they went onto the computer. I remember back in high school, I um we were shooting using like camcorders or not really cam I I just rem- I do remember they were like tape tapes you put into cameras. Yeah. And like you had to use a firewire cable. Yep. But I can't remember if um did it take that long to uh Dump footage. I can't remember. For the most part, yeah. For the most part, it was pretty much one to one. If I can, if I remember correctly, at least when I started using DV, that was definitely it. My first camera was like a JVC, like you know, consumer um, mini DV tape. Mm-hmm. Can, can I ask where you're from? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm originally um, from New Jersey. Really? Yeah. So, but like to make it clear, I'm I'm from South Jersey. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but. Well, you know, I think North Jersey gets a bad reputation of like being like the nasty side of like New York City. Well, okay. But like South Jersey is the reason that New Jersey is called the Garden State. Like blueberry capital of the world, lots of cranberries, Jersey tomatoes. Pretty much for the most part, South Jersey is a Zach Braff film. <laughs> no, not even. That's more <laughs> that's more North Jersey. Um is like all barrier islands mm-hmm. and resort towns. Yeah. 
and then you move into that, then it gets very rural. And then once you get to the other side, you get to like Trenton and Philadelphia. Hmm. So suburbs of there. So like, yeah, like, like the high school I went to is one of two high schools in the country that is actually on the same block as the beach. There's, it's the only one on the East coast and there's one in California. So like if the, like you would walk up to the front of the school behind it was a, um, the football field, a parking lot, and then the boardwalk. So Mm. like we were like right there, like we would on nice days, we were, instead of like running the track, they'd let us run the boardwalk for gym, which was, I think they, I think they had to stop that. They realized that in the spring we were supposed to be running and everyone stopped for popcorn and fries on the boardwalk. <laughs> and uh, where, where in New Jersey is this? I grew up in this t- the town of uh, Seaville. It's like 25 minutes south of Atlantic City. But then like, oh, okay. my high school was in Ocean City. Very interesting. It's I think they still have the sign up there. It's been almost 15, 20 years. They won um, Travel Channel's like greatest family resort. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the... And it's still like on all the signs when you come in, but it's, that's mostly just because it's a it's a traditional dry town, right? So it's kind of weird. It's the only like one of the barrier islands there that's like dry. And then you came here to University of Hartford for undergrad. Yep. What influenced your decision to come here? Pretty much, there was like two there's like two schools in like South Jersey that like kind of everybody goes to from Rutgers and. No, we're we're because we're f- sur- further south than that. It's um, oh. it's Rowan University, which is oh, right yeah. outside Philadelphia, right. and then Stockton, which is now Stockton University. When I was there, it's just Stockton College. It was like this weird, old kind of like we jokingly like hippie school from like the sixties and seventies that just like you know it wasn't a full university, but it wasn't but it wasn't a community college. It was just a small college, right? But it was just always funny because they're like you'd see pictures on the wall if you walk through, and they're like from like the first days of the university, and you're like, what is this? Is this a class that these are pictures of? Oh, they're like, yeah, that's the philosophy class. And what it was, it was like all these like Art Deco couches and students just sitting around having discussions with professors. It wasn't. It was like <laughs> like there was no desks or anything in the classrooms. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like sit and talk. It's like there's a lake out back. Go sit and talk by the lake when it's nice out. So, but now it's like a, a really, proper kind yeah, of school. Yeah, it's a really big university. They have been growing, and especially the thing is, they have this really nice new campus in Atlantic City. What they ended up doing was it's been financially kind of rough with Atlantic City. A lot mm-hmm. of you know, it's a big casino town. It made a lot of money in the '80s and early '90s when all the casinos moved in. But they started to leave the last ten years. So they bought an old casino and it's like, cause they have like a, they have like a major that's in, um, you know, like gambling, to- no, like, you know, like tourism and like blackjack dealing. Um, and like, you know, pretty much how to like, like business wise, like how to run like, uh, not, not necessarily a casino, but like a hotel, hotel management major yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. So they use that. And then they also have a, a culinary program mm. so they can, so, oh yeah. So getting back to your question, I just didn't, kind of just didn't want to stay for one you were in jersey and everyone who was in jersey wants to leave jersey that's actually true it has the right now apparently i read a report like two years ago new jersey has like the biggest exodus of any state right now it might be changing a little bit but for a while that was definitely the case as i think as you know like hartford does give a lot of scholarship money oh i know firsthand yeah Yeah. so like they pretty much i ended up paying a little less than in-state tuition for if i was staying in new jersey yeah. So it was like I could go away and still get equivalent to and like in state. Looking back on it, I probably should just because I would have probably gotten scholarships in New Jersey too. Yeah, could have cut back, but I wanted to go places, see something else. 
I'm glad I did though. I mean, I, I got a very good education here. So. And you graduated when? Um, 2012. And uh, were you were you always set on uh, majoring in cinema, film, film, cinema? It's called cinema here. Yeah. Um, for the most part, I mean, I've always loved movies. I've been obsessed with them since I was like five. But there was a time that I was like, I was really into all the music stuff in high school. But I just, to be honest, I realized that I'm like, you know, doing like jazz band, like concerts and like jazz festivals and stuff. I'm like, oh, I'm not that good. <laughs> like, you what know, did you play? Uh, tenor saxophone. Okay. So it's like I can get by, but it's just like, and also I realized like, what am I going to do with a jazz performance degree? <laughs> you know? I think most people who do that are trying to be, trying to make it like as musicians, like gigging musicians. Yeah. Yeah. And that just. Or they end up teaching. Yeah. The funny part is I didn't even, it wasn't until like my end of my junior year in college that I even thought about like going to get an MFA and so I could teach. It was a pretty quick turnaround because I decided like junior year and I'm like, okay, well, I got to start applying my senior year of college. So I made three films in like six months <laughs> and put them all on my reel that I sent out. And then I got into grad school the next year. It was kind of crazy. And that was on um, University of North Carolina at Greensboro? Yeah, yeah. It was interesting, really. It was kind of like, it's one of the, I guess, smaller campuses of like the whole UNC like network of schools. You know, Chapel Hill's like the the big. The flagship yeah, kind yeah. of. Uh, campus. Yeah, but it was it was great. It was interesting because I knew that the program there was not very like narrative based. But then I was sitting there like you know like the first day meeting all the other grad students in my class, and I realized I'm like, oh, one guy's a narrative filmmaker. Like, well, I figured there would be some people who that are narrative, even though like it's not really the school's main focus. And at the time, I was pretty much only making like really abstract experimental work, and then. Everyone else went around, they're like, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> and then I started talking to, like, the faculty, and they're like, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Like, everybody was, like, documentary, which, I mean, it's still nonfiction. To be honest, I think that's kind of what stood out on my reel, is that I had a documentary on there. I had, like, a really short narrative. I had an animation, and I had an experimental film on mm -hmm. my reel for grad school. And the head of the grad program is a documentary filmmaker who loves and has a, has like worked slightly in experimental film but then in the 80s and early 90s he did a bunch of there were like a bunch of like short like stop motion animations that like aired between like shows and commercials on nickelodeon mm -hmm. and he worked and did a bunch of those so it was like i think he just saw someone that was like working in the same exact three mediums as he was and he was just like oh this is great <laughs> get yeah. that kid here uh well do you remember uh any particular film that really piqued your interest if if you were if you do remember anything as early as A five like you said, oh, well I mean probably I would say the like the best school sick day I ever had in my life was it must have been like six and my mom was just like okay well you can't you're sick so I don't want you like running around the house and I'm like oh okay and then there was like nothing you know there's nothing on really for kids on a weekday no morning so she's like oh she she like worked down the street at the local grocery store she's like do you just want to go over and we'll grab a movie? Because like at that, it's a small town at that point. There was like, we, we didn't have, a, there was no like blockbuster or anything. There was like one like small video store on the other side of town. And mm -hmm. then like the grocery store had a, like a video department where you could rent films. Mm -hmm. So we went in. She's like, she's like, your brother really liked this. You want to watch this? I'm like, sure. And it was, it's, it was Star Wars. Because <laughs> my, my brother is um, 13 years older than me. Wow. He's, he's my half brother. So wow. like, um, 
she was just like, she's like, I don't know what kids like nowadays. Because <laughs> both my parents were like 39 and 40 when I was born. Mm-hmm. So they're just like, so she's like, I don't know. This is what was popular so what, in the 80s. Uh, here, see a Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. We, we watched it. We, we had, we kind of went over at 9.30 in the morning to get it. Watched it. Had lunch. Went back, returned it, got the second two, watched both in the <laughs> afternoon. I watched all three in one day. And I was hooked. Yeah, so like it's weird because, you know, I didn't start to get, nowadays I I guess I watch more like, I guess what you would consider art films. But that didn't happen until I got to college. I'd never seen Citizen Kane before, like freshman, my first freshman class. Yeah. Stuff like that. But it was really eye-opening. I had a, and I had a really interesting professor when I started that it, first year. Was it um, Lang? Um, actually, no. I, it was very interesting because what ended up happening, the year that I started, um, Professor Lang was on sabbatical writing a book. Oh, okay. So we had a visiting professor from NYU who was, she was finishing her doctorate. She was just, you know, pretty much the way your doctorate works, you'll like do coursework and then you have so much time afterwards to finish your thesis. And like at, during that time, she was like teaching while she was like spending two years to finish her thesis or so. Mm-hmm. Um, this woman, Isabel Frida. And so she was teaching here. And then the following year, Professor Walsh went on sabbatical. So she was here for like two years. And we kind of just hit it off. Any particular films that stand out in your mind that you saw? I will say that it was probably one of the funniest reactions is was um, in that class we watched Eraserhead. <laughs> and it was just so interesting because it's a whole... I've seen Eraserhead and um, the whole at the the way that it used to work is that the whole class was just the incoming freshmen because right. um, before then the rest of like now pretty much anyone in the university can take a the like a film studies course the intro to film studies as an elective yeah. for like an art credit that wasn't the case back then so like all of the there was only like one or two sections a semester all the freshmen got put in one class you could see all the freshmen. Film majors like, what the heck did they just make us watch? <laughs> and me and one of my best friends, Mike, were just like, that was awesome. <laughs> that was so cool. I, it's like it was nothing we'd ever seen before. This came out the same time as Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, to be honest, part of the other interesting thing about it is Eraserhead is shot really in a lot of industrial factories run down in Philadelphia. Yeah. So it's like, it's a place that I'd seen. So it was just like, I guess that also had a kind of connection being like, oh, cool. I've like, I thought filmmakers were only from New York or LA. Like I thought like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I wasn't really that aware of like independent filmmaking of like, yeah. you can just be passionate and like make it. Like I thought after I got a degree, I was a hundred percent going to have to go to LA. Yeah. I think um, Eraserhead was like David Lynch's, kind of thesis film when he was at AFI mm-hmm. and he I, he wrote produced and directed it himself right I don't, but to be honest I don't even know if it ever counted <laughs> because it took him like eight years to finish it because <laughs> I think his only degree is like in fine art or something um, I think he has a degree in like painting yeah, yeah. from um, University of the Arts in Philadelphia yeah. but he did end up going to AFI conservatory and I think I'm I'm pretty sure he got an MFA there, but I could be wrong. Yeah. And from what I can tell, either Eraserhead was his thesis film or he got started doing it yeah. as his thesis film, even if it didn't end up being that. Because there are a lot of like filmmakers that just didn't finish. Like, they're, 
especially back then when like the first like film schools kind of Herzog is famous for never finishing his degree and just stealing a camera from the university to to shoot his first like two films on. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> and then there are people who we held, we hold in such high regard in the film industry who like never went to film school. Yeah. Like um, you know, Spielberg apparently his grades were just abysmal, so he went to Cal State Long Beach and studied English. Yeah. Or I mean, Christopher Nolan who he couldn't get into film school. So he went to University College London where he studied English, but was able to like get into their facilities for the equipment. Yeah. I mean that's that that was the hardest part for the longest time, just getting gear. It's so it's so easy to get gear now. I have like a I bought a camera like five years ago for like six hundred bucks. It still works great and it does exactly what I needed to do. It only shoot it doesn't it doesn't shoot in four K or anything, but I like the images I get out of it. Was your tra- trajectory always like documentary? If that seems to be the thing you're you're focused on, um, not really. I got more into. I mean, I'd made some documentaries like as an undergrad, but it was it wasn't really my thing. It was just like I was trying to learn everything. Mm-hmm. But I think it was in grad school, spending so much time with documentary filmmakers, um, that kind of like I started to blur the line a little bit more of like of like what nonfiction film could be. You know, when I started making films, I was, like, obsessed with, like, Stan Breckage, which I feel like anyone that's, like, interested in, like, experimental film, it's the starting point. Because, you know, he's he's the kind of guy that started all the things where you would, like, scratch scratch the film, work right on the film, um, stuff like that. And, but, yeah, I've, I mean, the, like, the project I'm working on now is probably most influenced by Chris Marker's more, like, essay documentaries and, like, Chantel Ackerman's, like, kind of more, like structuralist and free-flowing documentaries like a, a big film i was like watching when i was like in pre-production for this is um i think i think it's just called letters home and it's she was like in her early 20s studying and like living in new york and she's she lives so long in france but i think originally from belgium and it was just like these long like poetic shots of the city and the voiceover over top of it is letters written from her mother to her you know it's a documentary but it's definitely more in the like poetic mode of documentary so that's kind of where i've leaned for a a while but the year after grad school i spent that my whole first year after grad school working with um a former professor editing his film for him so that that, that, that it took it took nine months he'd been working on the film for eight years yeah it's just what was the final runtime i think it's only like 88 minutes oh okay yeah that's the thing you got to especially for independent film, you got to like know your market. Cause at one time the first, our first cut was three hours. <laughs> and then that's like, you guys got to like, one of my favorite things I've always loved editing, but like spending that year, it's like, I, I love the process of like getting it down from that three hours to a tight 88. And it was great. Cause you got to know your mark target market. It's, I wish Vim vendors would have learned that. <laughs> well, I mean, he was able to, you know, sell it and get distributed a little bit better nowadays i mean i i know he it was produced through his own company Mm -hmm. but i'm not sure he he probably was some other company to distribute it well especially like that's the one thing we don't have here is that still in europe there's so many great art councils and art grants where you can get funding from the state yeah very rarely is there going to be is the u.s government going to give you ten thousand dollars to make art (laughs) like unless you're um, like a macarthur fellow yeah, there's like yeah, there are certain fellowships, 
like I know like most pretty much all my professors from grad school at one point had like one like pretty much like a a state like um, grants from North Carolina. They're pretty good about the arts. When you were teaching uh, the introduction to filmmaking class, now was in. What do you remember about say me? Well, this is my show. I get to talk about me. That's fine. <laughs> but like, uh, what, um, what, what exactly stuck out? Well, I th- it was pretty obvious that you had had some more experience than some of the other students with stuff. I think the thing that stood out the most is that I feel like I spend the first half of the semester, usually for that class, trying to make people understand both the workload it takes to make a film and the commitment you have to have to make a good film. And I think those two things were, you kind of already understood going into the class. Yeah. And like, I was surprised because like you like, you gave me like a, the first like rough cut. You're like, can you look at this? And I think it was like two weeks after I gave out the final project assignment. It was just like, you're just like, hey, I'm already starting to work on this. And part of the reason your film turned out so well is because, you know, you and I were looking at rough cuts of it before like a rough cut was ever due for class. Mm-hmm. So you were able to go through like five or six cuts. Yeah. And, you know, some people in the class changed their mind and shot a whole new film the weekend before it was due. Yeah. And the first cut was their final cut. And it showed. Like, yes. Yeah. I think part of that was just um, the fact that I pretty much had pre-production down mm-hmm. within... I had written a script in, like, the first... or well, actually, over in between semesters. Mm-hmm. So that when I came into the spring semester to take intro to filmmaking... I had pretty much had a draft of what I thought my final project was going to be. Right. And I'm, I think I handed a copy to you within like the first couple of weeks of class. Yeah, you gave me a script before we even... Like touched the screenplay part of the, yeah. the course. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's what stood out most about you is at least, you know, again, like you, like you even admitted, you weren't, you know, you didn't have all the skills really for some of the camera work, but like you knew... You took the pre-production time. You know, I think it was a really good stepping stone. I'm excited to see the next, like, film you make. Because, I mean, obviously you're going to be making something animation, but that's a whole different beast. Yeah. I think part of it was also, um, I shot the entire film in a day. Mm -hmm. Because there was just one one weekend where I was just like, for some reason, I really wanted it to be just myself. Yeah. I thought, this is like my first real short I pretty much have all the necessary equipment in order to get this done. I don't want to have to borrow anything. Yeah. Also, everyone had already borrowed all the other microphones. <laughs> no. So I, um, you know, I had a DSLR, my DSLR camera, which that would, that's just, that's completely fine. I had my own, like, audio recording equipment, like this Zoom H4N that we're recording, I'm recording onto now. A couple of dynamic mics, not unlike these. I suppose it was, um, me problem solving trying to like well i don't have shotgun mics so i guess i'll use a direct a dynamic mic try to keep it out of frame and crank the gain so it acts kind of like a directional kind of shotgun mic yeah yeah i mean that's the other thing you you knew that you know you had like you know half a semester to make a three to five minute film and you brightly smartly like kept it simple like yeah (laughs) you knew what you wanted to say and yeah you i think what one thing that helped is you worked with those obstructions. That's like, there's a great, I think one of his very, one of his few like documentaries is Lars von Trier has a documentary called the five obstructions Yeah, where he, uh, pretty much 
a friend, colleague, former professor or something. He has this guy recreate like a short film that the guy had made in the 60s. But like each he's like, OK, you're going to remake it five times. So I'm going to give you obstructions for each one, which is actually funny. That was my first my first assignment in grad school. We, first day of class, we watched that. And then the professor was like, here are your obstructions. Make a film. And that was like the project for the first semester. So it was like complicated because we had, we had, for that project, we had to shoot on film. Mm-hmm. So like part of the obstructions, like he even gave us like, this is the film stock you need to use. I think my, I also, luckily mine kind of played in my favor of my style a little bit mm-hmm. and more abstract and experimental because I know one other person that got it, I think was, was more one of the people that was more narrative based. It was like you can only have one cut in the whole film that w- that is longer than two seconds. <laughs> so it's like I had to make a three minute film. It was like black and white negative film stock, and it could only be like two second cuts. So it was like really abstract and intense. But luckily, you know, I actually had shot on film before. Me. And this one guy who was like in his 40s in the program <laughs> were the only people who had ever shot film. So it was just like everyone's like just trying to spend the whole time and, all, and like texting and calling me, asking me questions about like these cameras. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yeah. I'm like, and I was the only one that like knew, really knew well, like how to like adjust like the speed of the camera so you could like do slow motion and things. Yeah. And like we were using like 60 millimeter Bolex cameras. So the other thing you can do is you have like, you can put this like little key in and actually rewind the film so you can do like in-camera superimpositions over top of it. So, you know, you could shoot something, rewind the stock back, and shoot another image on top of it. Cool. It's kind of like in-production optical printing or something like that? Yeah. It's like the earliest kind of like, well, not earliest, because I guess there was a lot of mask, like early masking for special effects. Actually, that might have been a few weeks ago it came out. I'm sure just like you are a huge fan of just podcasts, like lots of different kinds. There was a great episode. I don't know if it was a repeat or a new episode from How Does This... How does this? How Did This Get Made? Oh, no, not... How Stuff Works? Things You Should Know? Stuff You Should Know? We're getting close. That's what the real title is. Yeah, Stuff You Should Know. And it's it was a whole episode on, like, movie special effects. But mm-hmm. they focused a lot on talking about, like, you know, pre-digital effects and stuff. They did spend a whole lot of time talking about how they did the um, all the... X-Wing and TIE Fighter stuff in the original Star Wars because mm. it's so fascinating because those all that all those like spaceship stuff they're just still models like the models never move mm-hmm. it was like one of the first time that you had like completely like programmable like automated like camera movement so you'd program it so it would so each camera move would would look the same thing and you would do like an X-Wing and then you would do the same thing with like a TIE Fighter but it would just be a single thing and then you'd you know, mask it and put it together in post. Have you um, seen anything recently that you think was think is cool? To be honest, I'm so busy. I very rarely get to see new things. Just like everybody else that like, sometimes you get, I teach and I talk about like great movies like every day. Sometimes it's just hard to be like, sit down to watch a challenging film on your free time. Like I, like I'd, sometimes I'd rather just sit down Watch something really dumb on Netflix. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what I do all the time. Like, pretty much if I'm doing any kind of work or prepping for classes, I usually have, like, just, like, repeats of, like, the dumbest, like, TV shows on the background. Well, I didn't mean, um, I wasn't 
presuming like um like what was the last like really challenging art house film you ever you seen but well i mean i still like i don't even know if i've seen any of last year's like best picture oscar nominations like that's like that's how much i mean i'm like i'm not (laughs) watching things which is bad i just just been busy because teaching trying to get my own film finished that i've been working on for like three years now and is that a documentary um it's it's an abstract documentary i guess okay it's it's a lot of found I say found footage. It's not completely found footage. It's a lot of um, slides that I've okay kind of taken because um, me and my dad have shot on the same Nikon camera for he bought it nineteen sixty four and he shot on it. Especially a lot of the footed photos I have from it that he like still had all the like slides for were pretty much all of his 20s like at 19 he gave me that camera mm-hmm. still like almost perfect condition i just have spent my whole entire 20s shooting on it so it's kind of a lot of the there's not as much footage per se it's more like photographs and slides okay. a lot of the footage is going to come is actually imagery of the camera itself and is this a feature no it's oh, okay. it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be a short like how short are we looking at one point i was thinking like 20 but it might be shorter it's sometimes the, I hate to say it, but sometimes you just have to play to an audience a little bit more. I've, okay. I've made a lot of work where, you know, it's, it's gone to festivals, it's gone around and like, but it's really small, obscure, like extremely like art house festivals. Sometimes you just have to be like, okay, what, what are festival programmers looking for? Because, you know, you want people to see your work. The other issue is as, you know, as a filmmaker, who is also a professor to ever have to ever get a tenure track job you just have to keep producing work and unfortunately yeah. sometimes that means well if you need to make a film every three years and that does well then sometimes you got to play to like festival audiences a little bit and not just be like this is art for art's sake i think i mean that's that's the hardest part about being a young filmmaker is like figuring out distribution nowadays because it's so it's just so different people Students here like have web series on like YouTube and stuff. When I was started at college, YouTube was still like cat videos and then like early like vloggers. Yeah. And that was it. Like nowadays there's full on professional production companies that are just YouTube based. Distribution has just changed so much already in just a decade that it's just sometimes hard to figure out like who your audience is and where your kind of target market is. Like I have a friend from grad school who also has like he went after while he was he's been teaching the last few years he went back and got an mba as well because like a lot of his he makes like you know f- actual feature length documentaries how do you sell a feature length documentary when you're not associated with like a big production company because you know even some of the big docs the last few years like you know they're backed by netflix stuff like that yeah. they, have, they have real money behind them do you ever find yourself um working in narrative um more often than than now or I I mean I do you think you're say um I don't want to say aversion to narrative filmmaking but do you think that's because like do you write at all do you find yourself writing screenplays I have ideas for narrative work and I have you know half scripts here and there but I don't I've never really been a writer writing and like English and all that stuff was really hard for me growing up 
And my dad, who's been a te- was a teacher for forty years, I was like eighteen, nineteen, and he's like, he's like, oh yeah, I've seen like so many students. He's like, you definitely show the signs of like minor dyslexia. <laughs> I'm like, why are we? St- why are you telling me this now? I like, I struggled all throughout, like, you know, school because the only way I could, the only way to remember things is I had to 100 percent memorize it. Like, I couldn't sound anything out. I just had to like take a like a mental picture of it and that's the only way i would like yeah. could remember words it was just funny he's like oh he's like but you did really good in school i'm like yeah but it was such a struggle <laughs> <laughs> so i'm i've just always been such a visual person i think that's why yeah i i kind of you know lean towards filmmaking and why a lot of my work and, I, and not but not so much like the writing bit of of filmmaking right like i have idea for like a narrative script that I've like you know bullet pointed out things like that but haven't really fallen written the script and that's partially because I feel like I would do so much better with like a writing partner the same like if I'm doing a more traditional documentary one of the thing I've found out for me is it's really good to find a good producer because I sometimes get so distracted in like the shooting of it the story the artistic side of it I forget about things like calling places to get contracts <laughs> and, you know, setting up meetings. Like that's sometimes I can't focus on both things one in while I'm in production. I mean, leading up to pre-production, that's fine. But once I get into production, I'm, I realize for stuff like that, I, you need a good producer. Kind of going back to like, like we were saying earlier about just kind of like process and workflow. Like I th- that's the other thing. You just have to, any filmmaker or any artist, you have to figure out what the best way work-wise works for you yeah like like i know like i i work best in the morning i'll get up between five and five thirty and be working by seven and then work all morning get lunch take my dog for a walk come back work for a few more hours make dinner and then if i have time ideally sit down with a good book or a film that i've been meaning to watch and that's like a good like work day for me yeah that's kind of me for um for for podcasting yeah um I find, so I started this in the summer. I think I told you before, I did like a a dozen episodes before ever launching it. Mm -hmm. And part of that was so that I could give myself time to figure out like how to, how to produce. Yeah. I'm glad I, I did take that time because the first couple of recordings I produced and exported as like ready to be published episodes were, were not ready. They sounded terrible. You know, it was just, it was such a steep learning curve of me trying to figure out how to, how to do this to the more? point, to the point where like I would spend entire days trying to figure out what to do with my file, trying out different kind of mix, different mixing procedures, different mixing techniques and like marathoning through all the recordings I had at the time, applying like the same kind of workflow to them because I figured right. if it works for one episode, it ought to work at least similarly for all of them. Yeah. And that's probably not the smartest idea because I was like working on a computer with headphones on for like 12 hours at a time. And at some point my ears were almost about to bleed. But in fact, I'm still finding stuff in episodes I have produced that are have yet to be released that like I, it's been like a month since I touched them and I come back to listen to them. I'm like, Oh wait, that's, um, that doesn't sound good. And then I have to go back and again, reproduce the episode get a good mix going and then hopefully like when i play it back in my car it doesn't sound like shit yeah i mean this 
I feel like you're asking a lot of yourself to, you know, schedule all these, produce all these, and host all these. It's it's a lot of work. I mean, <laughs> well, it, yeah. I don't have money to, like, hire a producer. All of my money is going to, like, the hosting platform for my content, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I guess it's not that much. It's like $15 a month. But then I where, also Where are you hosting it? Uh, Libsyn. Okay. Liberated Syndication. That's where, yeah. like, all the... A lot of big shows are on there. Like my favorites, what do you, uh, what the fuck with Mark Marin? Yeah, and um, you know if I'm paying that much a month to host the content, plus like all my other expenses of like gas to yeah. get here to commute here, it's like I don't want to. For one, I for I do not like I don't have a I haven't had a job in a couple of years because commuting an hour here and overloading <clears throat> my course load, it I'd probably kill myself. Yeah, and. It, even if I did have a job, I don't think I make enough money to like hire to hire like a real professional to produce my show. Yeah, and I mean, if you could always find another student who has some audio engineering background. Uh, I suppose, but then I would feel like disingenuous, where I'm basically like, "Hey, show me what to show me how you do this," <laughs> and then I just steal everything they could have. I could have paid them to teach me or something like that. Yeah. And it, it's, because again, I don't have money to hire anyone, so or even like host a website. My website's on WordPress, even though like the latest episode that's out right now, it's, there's a bit about me talking about how much I hate WordPress. Yeah, but the only upside is it's it can be free. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Think about yeah, my website's made with WordPress. I haven't I haven't updated <laughs> I haven't updated my website in like a year or so. Yeah, I see the uh, photo of you. You still have like a mullet or something. <laughs> I was that's probably the yeah probably a lot of my pictures are still like I used to have like shoulder length hair I had by the end of grad school I don't think I I don't think I cut my hair from like my senior year of undergrad to the end of grad school so it was like halfway like down my chest Mm -hmm. kept it up in a nice man bun all the time (laughs) (laughs) you're you still you still have like a bunch of hair it's a pretty thick had a hair and this this beard you have going on. Yep, that's that's been the look for a long I can, time. I don't. Maybe it's just me, but I can't stand having a lot of hair mm-hmm. on my head. Uh, the way I'm put together, I run pretty hot mm-hmm. already, and so like having a lot of hair on my head is just not a good idea. Especially if I'm wearing glasses, mm-hmm. and my glasses are black, and so yeah. these things on my face that absorb all the light and heat up plus all this surface area in contact with my face while I'm, like, walking around campus from building to building. It, yeah. It'd be just... I've done it, and it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, I've... I think mine comes from... I, I grew up in, like, a surfing, skating community. Yeah. Plus, long hair protects a lot of my very pasty skin. <laughs> it's nice. Good? Oh, we can be done if you want. That's fine. Cool. Cool. 